It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to a bonus episode of New Scientist Weekly. I'm Leia Crane, and this episode I'm speaking with astrophysicist Erica Nesvold, who spent a long time as a physics researcher and is now a developer for Universe Sandbox, one of my very favorite programs, which lets you build systems in space and, if you want, smash them together. And she's written a book called Off Earth, Ethical Questions and Quandaries for Living in Outer Space. And we're going to talk about some of those questions and quandaries today. Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Before we get into the quandaries, can I ask sort of what inspired you to, to write this book? Sure. Um, I think if you go back long enough, really, what inspired me was uh, too much science fiction as a child, so would say. <laughs> but more recently than that, I was working as a postdoc in DC. I was an uh, astrophysics researcher, and I got a great opportunity to go out to Silicon Valley for a six-week NASA program at uh, NASA Ames, uh, working on planetary defense, which was just cool. And they introduced us to a lot of people in the private spaceflight industry, which was exciting. But then as I started talking to them, I started to get the impression that they were really focused on solving technological problems and economic problems, but were... Not that worried about what I saw as potentially really important human rights and ethical problems like like labor rights or how to avoid contaminating the moon if you go up there to do lunar mining. They just kept saying things like, oh, well, we'll worry about that later. And I recognized that I don't have the background or the education to answer those sort of questions either. So I came back and made a podcast called Making New Worlds where I interviewed actual experts in things like colonial history and sociology, activists in various fields, to talk about all these issues. And that's what got me into the idea in the first place. What do you think is the biggest ethical issue facing us if we do want to start a society in space? Oh, man. Well, the first question and first and last, the question we have to keep asking ourselves, I think, is whether we should be doing this. And if so, why are we doing this? Um, a lot of people will stop right at the should question and say, you know what? No, we shouldn't. We're not ready as a species, or maybe we just shouldn't at all. I don't necessarily agree with those points, but I think it's worth having those conversations. And then if you're still sure after that conversation that we should be going off into space and building permanent settlements out in space, uh, you have to ask yourself why. Why do you think we need to do those reasons make sense? Are they based just in emotion or a misunderstanding of history, perhaps, um, and, and ideas about human destiny that you need to examine a little more? And the reason you need to do that is because all of those questions and answers will determine all the ethical problems that you face after that. How you handle conflict and how you handle environmental justice, all of that comes from why are you doing this in the first place? 
Yeah, and I have to admit that I've thought about this a lot and I continue to be really torn about human space exploration because on the one side, I can't personally really think of a reason why that convinces me. And on the other hand, it's so cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's uh, it really, it's amazing how you can take the most rational, you know, STEM educated, tech focused person uh, who wants to dedicate their lives to space and you ask them why and you do not get rational tech focused answers. You start to get <laughs> really poetic language about our future lies in the stars and things like that because it really does tap into an emotional part of all of us. Can I ask you personally, what do you think about if we should? I am not convinced by the arguments that we're not ready as a species. And a couple of reasons for that. One is that I do think that we need to figure out how to live places beyond the earth because the earth will not always be habitable for humans. Now that is a really long time scale to work with. So I don't feel <laughs> quite the same level of urgency as some people because earth is by far the most habitable place in the universe right now and will be for a long time. When you say a long time, you mean like billions, billions right? <laughs> billion years. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, which, which is a long time, but, um, <laughs> but it's, you know, it's worth starting to think about that now. And the other is that I, I'm not convinced that we're ever going to be able to all agree on what it would mean for us to be ready to go to space, what, what it would mean to be mature enough as a species. And so um, I, I don't think it's necessary that we, we wait around for that. But I do think that that doesn't mean we just get to run off and follow our, our hearts and do this without, without thinking about what we're doing. Come you know, on. I think <laughs> we need to we need to do this deliberately. We need to have a lot of conversations like this one. And, um, you know, we, we need to think about human history and, and how to not repeat the mistakes of our past. Yeah, I know one thing that I've been thinking about quite a bit is uh, who and how we get to these places if we're going to, because there's no regulation saying, you know, if I happened to have a really, really dope spaceship, which I don't. I could just go to Mars and start my own society with my own laws and <laughs> do whatever I wanted. And I know there's been some talk by certain billionaires about setting up a sort of indentured servitude where you work on Mars to pay your way. Do you see a way to prevent these issues that we've seen in the past on Earth from repeating themselves off world? So a lot of this gets into space law and space policy. And, and I'll be clear, I'm not a space lawyer. But I talked to a lot of space lawyers. Um, there's a little thing called the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, which is kind of a miraculous treaty when you look at what it says and when it was signed. Um, it says things like no nuclear weapons in space, for example. And this was signed by the USSR and, and the US in the 60s, mm -hmm. which is amazing. And it also says things like nations can't appropriate territory in space. So Canada couldn't decide to go to the moon and say the moon is ours now. It's not that explicitly clear about whether you or I could go to the moon and say, the moon is mine now. Um, <laughs> it, it does say that that individuals, private companies, et cetera, we, we have to have oversight by the launching state. So if we launch from Canada, then Canada gets to set the rules on what we can do there. So a lot of this is kind of remains to be seen how it's going to be tested in court. And that includes all the billionaires who, who want to go up and, and start mining. But uh, we're, we're going to find out. Uh, and one worry that I, I've heard from people working in the policy world is that the huge, super fast growth of this private space industry is really outpacing regulation. You can see this especially uh, in low Earth orbit, where just 
tens of thousands of satellites are going up in these mega constellations and people are starting to really get concerned about orbital debris, but regulation just can't keep up because regulation just moves slower. Right. And I know there's been some issues even with people sending up things that are against regulations and there's not much they can do about that after it happens. So in terms of solutions, do you think it's time for us to start thinking about that kind of regulation now or I guess yesterday? <laughs> so so some people are thinking about it. Uh, the U.S. is moving forwards with things like uh, they had a, a Space Act in 2015. The, the Artemis Accords are meant to sort of have lots of countries come together and say, okay, we're all going to agree on these same sets of behaviors that we're going to agree to in, in space. But it's it's not going to cover everything. And, uh, and eventually... I don't think we possibly can predict everything that's going to lead to conflict in space. And so the other thing we'll have to do is um, make sure that we learn from mistakes. We respond to conflict as, as rationally and calmly as possible and fairly as possible and just keep trying to do better as we go. I'm wondering if you have any ideas on how we make those regulations enforceable. Because I know the big problem in my experience talking to people with the Outer Space Treaty is that its wording is incredibly vague and it basically says don't do bad stuff <laughs> without a lot of explanation of what that means. And, you know, on the other hand, if I launched myself a rocket and went and stole a moon buggy on the moon, who's going to arrest me? <laughs> right. So so this is one big question is, you know, when you're so far away from, let's call it the rest of civilization, how does the rest of civilization even notice that you're breaking the law, right? So, so monitoring <laughs> in the first place is an issue. But uh, we all have our telescopes pointed at space, so I think it'll depend on what you're trying to get away with. Of how <laughs> Someone's joyriding on the moon. Yeah. The other thing <laughs> I'll point out, so so I'll, I'll stay away from the international treaty law part of this because there are better experts to talk to there. But I was uh, I talked to a space lawyer named Laura Montgomery, and I asked a similar question of like, She's how do we so even great. enforce? She is great. I said, <laughs> how do we even enforce this stuff? And she pointed out that for a long, long time, the people who are trying to get away with bad behavior in space, for example will still have most of their assets back here on Earth, right? Like no one's going to mm -hmm. pack up their entire net worth and sell all of their belongings and move to – no no decision makers anyway and, – and move to space <laughs> and then say, well, you know, nobody I care about, nothing I own is back on Earth so I can just sit here and, and do what I want. Most people are going to have most of their assets back on Earth and that's going to be things that uh, that the government in charge of them can step in and do enforcement through through means like that. At this point, it seems like pretty clear that the law has a bit of a long way to catch up, regardless of what law we're talking about, national, international. At this point, does anyone even know what they need to do to catch up? Or is this is this sort of a situation where we're going to have to think on our feet as someone like Elon Musk says, hey, I'm launching to Mars next month. And then we think, okay, now we have to make some regulations for Mars. I think it's a little bit of both. I, there's a ton of really smart people who are working on these problems, uh, policymakers, and, and have been working on these problems for a while, ever since they were working on the Outer Space Treaty in the 60s. And since then, all of those regulators and policymakers have been watching as things evolved, as the private space industry grew, and they recognized that, that we're going to need regulation for that. So they're all working really hard. They're trying to anticipate these problems. It's just that it takes time to write policy and then convince everybody that those policies are, are good ideas. So it's not like they're sitting around not thinking about those issues. They at least are not saying, oh, we'll worry about that later. But they are always going to be a little bar far behind. And like I said, you can't anticipate everything. So I think we'll also need 
a sort of attitude of, of flexible response to figure out how to respond to unexpected things to come up. Related to that, one of the interesting examples that you talk about in your book is when there was a stabbing in Antarctica, which is sort of as close to the isolation and lawlessness of space that you can get without actually going to space. What do we do if someone does a stabbing in space? Is there any framework now of if someone on the ISS murdered someone else in the ISS, what would happen? <laughs> um, well, the ISS at least is very close to home. In fact, I'm pretty sure you could get back to Earth from the International Space Station faster than the attacker in that Antarctic case got <laughs> back to St. Petersburg to stay in trial because it takes a long time to get back from Antarctica, especially in the winter, and uh, the ISS is actually closer. It's when you get to, to places like the moon or, or far enough out on a spaceship mm. that you can't turn around and come back. Crime in space is a question that people are starting to talk about a bit more in individual level crime, not, oh, this person is is running an indentured servitude empire, which is its own kind of behavior we'll have to deal with. But just individual person on person crime is something that will happen in space because we're humans and uh, and we'll need to decide what to do about this. And I talk about it in the book because it turns out that a lot of the systems that we have set up to deal with those sort of things here on Earth, especially in the U.S., are incredibly impractical in space and are already ethically really being questioned on earth today. So things like uh, police and prisons are both just really hard to set up in a, in a place where you're really living on the edge of survivability, right? Uh, you know, you right. have really scarce resources, really scarce amount of labor, and you're going to decide to take a couple of people out of the labor pool because one of them needs to be locked up and the other one needs to guard them. That's that's just going to be a, a tough sell. And so it's... Right, uh, if you've got six people. Right. And, <laughs> and what if the person who needs to be, if you decide who needs to be locked up, what if they're the only ones who know how to do something crucial for mm. the settlement, right? They, they can work the life support system or something that, that could just be really impractical and lead to, to some tough choices. So I think it is really important now to look at what has worked and what hasn't worked in small isolated communities here on Earth in the past. That includes Antarctica, that includes ships at sea, but I, I think it also includes just small communities in, in non-Western cultures around the world who don't have prison systems and yet manage to address, uh, you know, violent interpersonal crime in other ways. Um, so I hope that there's more conversations about that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I can't imagine that we're going to be having people walk the plank, but at the same time, it's hard for me to think about what you do, actually, if your only doctor murders your only yes. minor. <laughs> One thing I've noticed when people talk about this online, so first of all, don't read the comments, but one thing I've noticed <laughs> in the comments of, of stories I've written about this is because of science fiction, people are really eager to jump to the idea of airlocks, which is basically walking the plank, mm -hmm. but yeah. in science fiction. And, uh, and there's a lot of talk about frontier justice and oh, we'll just show them to the airlock because that's what people do in sci-fi stories but um that's just awful that's an awful place to start when you're proposing a criminal justice system in space is oh you know you know what we'll just we'll just execute everyone we'll banish right, them which is essentially one dude in your yeah yeah i i don't think that's a good place to start if you're trying to create a new society <laughs> that you're proud of or just in general, yeah. Or just in general, yeah. Um, yeah, you got to start uh, less extreme than just murdering everyone. Yeah. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Do you have any examples in the book or, or through your research of how these small isolated communities do deal with crime in a way that's more sustainable for the community and, and maybe more ethical. So I include a really lovely story from Walida Imarisha, who's an activist who works on prison abolition. And um, I won't give it entirely away here also because I don't have it right in front of me. I want to quote it correctly. But she talks about a man she was talking to from a community, I think in Eritrea, who um, who explained that when somebody did something in the community that was against the community in some way, rather than banishing the person or kicking them out of an airlock, they would all gather with that person and say, do you remember when I broke my arm and you helped me gather my crops? Do you remember when I was sick and you helped me? Do you remember what you've done for this community? We love you. We want you to be better. And that sounds cheesy and kumbaya, but it worked It worked for that community. Um, and I don't think we should dismiss it just because we have such a cynical attitude. And more broadly from, from that anecdote, I've talked to a lot of criminologists and activists working on something called restorative justice or um, something similar, which is transformative justice, which are movements within the U.S. to provide alternatives to the carceral prison system that criminologists have found that the victims are actually more satisfied at the end of these processes than they are at the in processes where their assaulter is just uh, locked up in prison. It involves actually finding justice in a way that makes the victim whole at the end rather than just a, a completely punitive approach that frankly just costs everyone money and and begets more violence because prisons are violent places. Yeah, it sounds like uh, we're going to want to send a lot of therapists and social workers which is, I don't know, equivalent to regular society and what we might, in my opinion, need in regular society. But it sounds like we're going to have to have people whose job it is to mediate rather than people whose job it is to be a prison guard. That certainly sounds, number one, more pleasant as a place to live. And number <laughs> two, if you're just in it for the practical things, um, it just sounds more efficient mm. to include someone who can get everyone to be happy at the end of the process and keep working for the good of the community instead of just feeling, oh, justice has been, been served because this guy got thrown out an airlock. Well, that's that's not useful. <laughs> that's not actually <laughs> going to help your community thrive. Right. So it seems like there's there's sort of upsides to doing it in a way that considers what's right and wrong, even if your only actual goal is mine the asteroid, get the money. Yes. <laughs> yes, a- absolutely. Even if you're if you're listening to to discussions like this or reading my book and thinking, I don't care about 
how nice we are to people. I don't care about ethics. I just care about, you know, can we make the colony survive? Can we make money off of this? There's still so much evidence that thinking about these perspectives can get you a better result in the end, even if you don't care about how nice people are to each other. <laughs> yeah, but I don't know that I want to live in a society where nobody cares about if people are nice to each other. Um, That's a good point, too. Yeah, well, it which goes like a to very the squishy thing to say, but now that still. goes to the bigger question that I kind of touch on in my book is um, if you're just concerned about making sure the colony survives or making sure that you're making off money enough money off of, of it, you have to step back and ask yourself, what is the point of all this? Um, like, am I? Are we just? What, why are we bothering to make sure the human species survives if we're gonna make it just a really brutal and unpleasant? existence? Shouldn't we be reaching for a little bit more than that? Shouldn't we be trying to make space and earth in the future better places for our descendants instead of just there being more of us around? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't agree more. And uh, I think that's part of goes back to the original question of what do you hope to accomplish with your space settlement? Because if you're just trying to save humanity in four billion years when the sun expands or however long before climate change gets us all. It seems like going to another planet is for now a really dumb way to do that. Not to not, not to be negative, but for now, if you're just trying to save humanity, it's super hard to save humanity on Mars. It's a lot easier to save humanity here. Yeah. And and either way you're gonna have to figure out more than just, oh, we need more real estate or more resources. We're all What we're all struggling for today is figuring out better ways to live with each other and with our environment. And we'll have to do that no matter where we're standing, whether it's on Earth or in space. Yeah, it reminds me of there was this very viral clip a couple years ago of someone saying, oh, well, these people living in these flood areas will just sell their houses. The response was, sell their houses to who? Yeah. Um, and it yeah. feels a little bit like, oh, well, we're on earth and we'll just, uh, we'll just up and leave it's up and leave. Yeah. Well, uh, what? Climate, climate change and space are both interesting because there are a lot of people who are, and good for them. They're one way that they're trying to address these big issues is to, um, just invent better technology. And that's great. We need technological innovation. However, we can't solve any of these problems with technology alone. So we also need to be developing better sociological observations about human, how humans live together and better policies and, and better um, you know, legal systems. So I think that'll help us survive both here and in space. Right. Considering these ethical questions for space also means we're considering them in general. Exactly. So I guess that sort of precludes my other question, which was how long you think it's going to be before these questions in space start to become urgent. Because a lot of it mm. feels very future looking. You know, you mentioned Earth is going to be not habitable in billions of years. Right. I don't think, despite what people are claiming, I don't think that people are going to be having a society in space anytime soon. I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime. Right. I, I'm, start being urgent I'm skeptical that we're going to have permanent human habitation in space in, in my lifetime. I, I try to stay away from any time estimates at all because futures are just bad at guessing time <laughs> when it comes to technology. But I'm skeptical about it happening in my lifetime, which then the, leads to the question of, okay, well, why am I worrying about any of this stuff? 
couple answers to that question. One is that we don't need permanent habitations in space to worry about things like environmental justice in space because we're already damaging the space environment when it comes to low Earth orbit. As soon as we start doing things like mining, we're going to be damaging those environments and, and we need to, th to think about what we're doing there and learn from the environmental production and, and justice movements on Earth. Um, and we, uh, it's not too soon to be thinking about labor rights because there are already um, – concerns about labor rights abuses in the private space industry, you know, the, the companies that are working in, in the private space industry as they exist here on earth have already had some labor rights concerns. So we might as well start thinking about that now, even if those workers are not technically in space. Other things like crime in space, I don't know when that's going to happen because hopefully not anytime soon. But You're not planning on in, committing it. So. Right? Well, but then there's people in space, so I, I can't promise it won't happen soon. But um, crime in space and things like reproductive rights. I talk about a lot about reproductive justice and reproductive rights in space. That's going to be probably a long time coming because we don't even know whether it's possible to uh, have children in space. But I think it's still worth thinking about these issues and talking about them because not only does that always seem to lead back to our present day troubles on Earth, which it's worth talking about, but I find that it, um, and me at least, it lets me imagine solutions to these problems that are way more radical than I would come up with if I was thinking about Earth. I mean, we were just talking about criminal justice. And as you can hear, I've really leaned into prison abolition, which I had not thought about before I started working on this. Because when you grow up in the US, you know, even if you think, well, it'd be nice to live in a world with no prisons, it's really hard to imagine how you'd get there from here. But if you start in this sort of sci-fi context of, okay, imagine I was starting a community from scratch on Mars. I don't have to have prisons there if I don't bring them there. So how would I do it instead? You can have those conversations and use that uh, to maybe imagine better visions and better solutions for Earth that uh, that you wouldn't come up with otherwise. So I, I think it's a useful exercise, even if our grandchildren aren't even living in space. Right. It's interesting. It's like a cheesy HR speak, but it's that it's presenting not so much a problem as an opportunity. That's right. We're starting fresh. We can we can do it the right way. And then what's left is people agreeing on the right way, which is its own barrel of monkeys. Um <laughs> Uh, a lot of people have argued for a lot of space colonization advocates in particular, going back to like the, the 70s, have argued that one of the nice things about space colonies is that they'll be like little sociological laboratories where we can try all these different political systems and see what works and what doesn't, which um, sort of makes me concerned because what happens to the people in the failed experiments? I don't think we should just... Uh, that we sounds just, like fiefdoms to me. Right, right. There's, there's a lot of ways that could go wrong and unpleasantly for the lab rats. But in terms of imagining space settlements and right, making plans and talking about how you would, and this is where science fiction comes in, of course, you can perform these thought experiments um, in the context of space. And I think that can lead to some really interesting results that wouldn't have come up if you were just trying to figure out how to make things better in the U.S. on Earth, for example. That was Erica Nisbold, author of Off Earth, Ethical Questions and Quandaries for Living in Outer Space. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode of the show and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you soon. Bye for now. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.